Many of you know that for many years I've been involved with Kyrill's prison ministry because people need the Lord. Yesterday, Julie and I spent the day at Marietta at Methodist Church for training for the emergency response team, part of the UMCOR United Methodist Committee on Relief, because it provides relief and response for those who are in need in terms of disasters because people need the Lord. And on the way home, we were talking to our brother and sister-in-law about our father-in-law, who is very uh, advanced in years and, and aging and doing very well, um, but at the same time, they look ahead to a time of, they had asked me to do his funeral when the time comes because people need the Lord. So for Benita and Cindy, thank you for reminding all of us, myself included, that people need the Lord. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Today we begin a new sermon series called Still to Come, as we look back to the future from the perspective of the book of Revelation, the passage that Cindy tearfully read. I was ready to step in and read for her in case she needed a little assistance there. But this book of Revelation is an amazing book. It's also a very complex and challenging book. There are many twists and turns and rapid plot developments in its pages. More than anything you'll see in Downton Abbey, The Voice, Doctor Who, or even The Crown of Thorns. This book contains all the elements of a great thriller. In its pages, you'll find action, suspense, mystery, wonder, fear, drama, horror, you name it. There's so much excitement there. And while it takes a whole full 22 of the action to be completely developed, John, the author of this book, gives us a sneak preview of coming attractions, if you will, here even at the very beginning. He whets our appetites for that which is coming our way in the remainder of the book. The opening scene of this passage is a greeting in the form of a letter, like a plot device used in films like You've Got Mail or Pride and Prejudice or even The Notebook. You know, snail mail letters begin with that classic, dear blank, and ends with a variation of yours sincerely, right? We're used to all that. But email or text messages, you know, they have their own styles, and they usually have abbreviations, self-correct, and a lot of emoticons. But the custom of writing letters in the ancient world of the New Testament took the form of X to Y, hi. Think of it this way. Paul to the church at Corinth, greetings, right? We're used to hearing that. But the Christian form of writing in many ways of these letters favored the word grace in it. And with the Jewish influence, the greeting of peace or shalom, such that they combined a lot of it to grace and peace, right? But here in this letter, in the book of Revelation, in this letter, this letter from John is uniquely different. It's no casual greeting. It's no ordinary grace and peace, but grace and peace from a very special source. John is wishing his readers grace and peace from God. The letter was sent to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, and they are mentioned by name in 
verse 11 and are dealt with in detail a little bit later on in the book itself. But about these churches, first, they were real, literal congregations that existed at the time John penned this book. And Jesus, through John's writing, spoke to them about real saints, real sinners, real situations, and real solutions. And second, these churches are representative of every Christian church that has ever existed. And every church contains some of these different characteristics that mark each of these early churches. And so while this letter was not addressed specifically to the First Methodist Church of Orange, this book, this letter, has just as much to say to us as it was addressed to these original churches. The opening line in verse 4 tells us that this letter was sent to the seven churches. And this is the first time the number seven is used in this book of Revelation. It's a number that will show us up, shows up time and time and again as we go through this book. And seven, as a lot of us know, represents perfect, completion, and even fullness. So when the Bible mentions the seven churches, it's referring to the church in its fullness, in its completeness. So even though this book was not specifically named to Fumco, it still speaks to us as though it were. Seven is a very prominent number. We're used to it. There are seven colors that makes up the light spectrum, seven notes in the musical scale. And in the Bible, it talks about uh, seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. At Jericho, there were seven priests carrying seven trumpets that marched around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. And in the book of Revelation, the number seven is used 49 times, which is seven times, right? Okay. There are the seven churches, there are seven spirits, there are seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven... You get the idea. Go ahead and read the book. Now, I'm not a lot into numerology, but I do note all these things. And so today, we are blessed to have the consecration of our associates and ministry team with eight AIM team members in this new class. You know, while seven is the number of completion, the number eight, hmm, according to some biblical scholars, they represent a new beginning, meaning a new order of creation, because our true born-again experience is with Jesus, and we celebrate the resurrection from death into eternal life. And how appropriate it is that we follow this up after last week's celebration of Easter. Let me explain that a little bit more in terms of what eight means. Like the Old Testament Passover lamb, Jesus was selected as the lamb to take away the sins of the world on the Hebrew calendar of called uh, Nisan. And that date was Nisan 10. It's like a month, if you will. He was crucified on Nisan day 14. His resurrection occurred exactly as he stated three days after he was buried, which was at the end of the weekly Sabbath that fell on Nisan 17. Nisan 17 was also the eighth day, counting inclusively. So you have Nisan 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. How many days? Eight. Eight days, okay? So Nisan was the eighth day, Nisan 17, and this all bears record of Jesus' perfect sacrifice and his complete victory over death. The number eight, then, symbolizes the initiation of the heart through Jesus Christ. And those in Christ are a new creation with godly character. 
created by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we will lift up the eight members of the AIM team as their new ministry begins with these coming attractions that calls and draws from the book of Revelation. But going back to John, John, having received a powerful vision of God, sat to write his encounter and share it with the churches that spread across what we would call modern-day Turkey. He knew that all these sensational images that he had seen and those powerful words from Jesus would be hard to believe. How many of you have read Revelation, tried, and completely understood it? Yeah, it's a hard book. It's a hard book, and lots of images as such. But John knew the struggles of the early Christians and how much they needed to hear the hope that Christ was offering. And maybe he even knew that the words he wrote would be read by many others and that his words would point us and all the church today back to God. And as he sat to pen what would become the grand finale to the most influential book of the world, the Bible, John realized the gravity of his task. And so he began by rooting his vision into the foundation of who he understood God to be. I was asked, what am I preaching about today? Being a former biochemist and very logical, I brought it down to this. Think of it this way. A equals B. B equals C. Therefore, A equals C. Just kind of keep that in mind, because I'm one of those people who, you know, think logically in many ways. And in fact, there are times, you know, when I can't sleep, you know, people count sheep. I count sheep in prime numbers. <laughs> One, three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen. You know, that's what I do, okay? Or even counting backwards, and people count from one through hundred. Sometimes I count backwards from one hundred. It's easy to count hundred, ninety-nine, ninety, or even two, you know, hundred. 98, 98. I count backwards in threes. So that's, you, you try that. Not, not now, please, but not now. Anyway, the opening verse that we see in John's book here, it talks about grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Did you catch that? John describes God, the author of his visions, using that ancient formula, not a text message, but this, the one who is the one who was, the one who is to come. And this expression of God's identity dates the very first time God revealed his name to Moses in the burning bush. I am. When God used the Hebrew word I am, he used the verb to be with no tense. And so it's correct to translate I am or I was or I will be. They're all right. And John uses all three when he talks about God because it all depends on who God is. And whether it's reading a letter in the Bible or some other book or even watching a movie, it could be tempting to skip over the introductions, you know, just cut to the chase. And how many times have we been assigned a textbook or something, school or work, only to pass over the introduction because there are just pages, pages, pages I want to get to the text itself. And even if it's a book in the Bible, I mean, how many of us have study Bibles? We just jump to the chapters, but we fail to read the introduction about that particular book. And I know I've skipped over them, but when I've actually read the introduction, I now have a new window insight into that author's thinking. By reading the rationale, purpose, and creating a book, I can better understand why 
things are laid out as they are and begin to use the insights and features of that book. The introduction and the first couple of verses, verses 4 through 8, sets the course for the text, and John's text is rooted in who Jesus is. Remember, A equals B, B equals C. Okay, keep that in mind. John links, if you will, Jesus to who God is as the one death and is the ultimate ruler of earth. Last week on Easter Sunday, Pastor Bill affirmed that from the resurrection, all who believe in Christ are inheritors of the promise and hope of God. So we see that John has an Easter faith, if you will, a faith that Jesus' victory beyond the grave shows his power over sin and death collectively, if you will. And because Jesus overcame the grave, he is alive and ultimately rules over the powers of this world. And as John has his focus on the identity of Jesus, he also points us to who Jesus has been. In particular, John points us back to Jesus' saving work on the cross. Jesus, in his death, changed the world because he demonstrated the amazing of love so deep that God would give his life up for a sinful humanity. The sacrifice on the cross, actions that Jesus undertook in a moment of history demonstrates who God is and frames our understanding of who God is. So worshiping God for who he is is rooted then in who we know God to have been. It all kind of weaves in together, hang in there. Jesus, excuse me, John also does what most of us think about when we hear the book of Revelation. John points us to the God who is to come. And just as John centers us in who God is, as the one who overcame death and who was the one who died on the cross, John speaks beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who will come back on the clouds. He speaks with great confidence that this will happen. This future reality is part of the very nature of God because God's future work is just as important as who God is now and who God has been through the ages. From what we can tell, John knew the churches of Asia fairly well. He had come to know their strengths and victories, along with their weaknesses and failures. He earnestly cared for them and urgently shared God's vision with them. He knew that many were facing persecution, just as he had, and that Christians were facing real costs to follow Jesus. And despite that John said, I have no doubt that many of these Christians struggled at times to see who God was and who God is. They had heard stories of the one who overcame death, yet they faced the threat of death every day. They had been promised victory and had found chains. Tradition says that John himself was tortured with hot oil before being exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote Revelation. John brought us the promise that this all would be made right. Jesus was the one who died so that we can live. He is the one who overcame death. And he is the one who will come to make this reality tangible to the whole world. And that's what John is getting at here. God's identity is eternal. God has been working to redeem humanity from the evil we have chosen since the beginning. In Revelation, John details God's promise to us on how 
this will happen. And over the next few weeks, we'll look into that vision that God has for the world and for our church and who God is calling all of us to be. John centers this vision on who God has always been, who he is now, and who he will be forever. Can you think of a time here in worship when we remind ourselves of that truth? I'm reminded of the time when we gather for communion and we say that prayer that we proclaim the mystery of faith. We say, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And we celebrate that revelation promise every time we come and celebrate communion here at this table. And not just by saying these words, but by what we do. We remember that how we experience God's day, including at the communion table, is rooted in Jesus' eternal identity. And as I especially exhort the associates and ministry team, remember your foundational basis and identity is in the God who is, who was, and is to come as this book of Revelation gives us that sneak preview of coming attractions. And so quite simply, in the beginning, God. In the end, God. And in the midst of it all, God. And these are less statements about any time and place than they are statements of hope and trust in Jesus that you as a team are to share with us in this church. So how does all this work for you as an AIM team? First and foremost, it starts with prayer. Tucked away in a little corner in First Chronicles 14 is what has become known as the popular prayer of Jabez. It says this, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from hurt and harm. This little prayer has helped thousands draw closer to God. And now, I have not been exactly where you have been in terms of your individual and collective life experiences, but soon you will be affirmed and consecrated as associates in ministry to and for the community of the First United Methodist Church of Orange, as it were, as ministers of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And while it has been a long time since I graduated from any formal training, I don't think I have the right to offer you lots of advice in the wake of your sophisticated minds, today's technological advances. But there is one thing I want to share with you that may not be very sophisticated or very high tech, but it may help you as you make the transition into the ministry with your legacy of faith in Jesus Christ. You heard of the prayer of Jabez, but I want to offer you the prayer of Jabez candy dispensers. Yeah, that's right. I've got another one. These are mine, a little lammy. And Mickey Mouse, this is a collector, okay? Pez is the first interactive toy that requires no batteries. There you go. Laugh all you want, but Pez dispensers can bring you and others closer to God. Think about it for a moment. The simple design of a Pez dispenser has not been improved since they were invented back over 92 years ago. Mm -hmm. A simple plastic toy with a plastic head that when tilted back gives you one small piece of candy. My favorite is cherry. Let's start with the obvious reference to Luke 11.9. 9. 
So I say to you, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Knock, knock. Dispense Pez, right? In a world where there are Avengers Endgame toys that are given away in McDonald's Happy Meals, and kids are blown away with the latest megabit graphic video game like Mortal Kombat 11, the Pez dispenser shows that simplicity in life is the greatest reward. In Matthew 18.3, Jesus said, unless you change to become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Pez dispensers have also achieved their own level of coolness. Hey, they're the own one stand out and say, hey, I'm not one of the crowd. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what happens when you pull the Pez dispenser out of your pocket, your purse, or your backpack? A dozen hands come out asking for a piece of candy. Pez dispensers can open up lines of communication between strangers and break down barriers when you step out into the world, when you go beyond the walls of the church. The simple act of sharing Pez can lead to sharing stories of childhood and eventually stories of faith. The book of Acts says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they Pez dispensers come in hundreds of styles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that my kids had, Garfield, Star Wars, Muppets, Flintstones, Disney, and other collectibles. Each character on a Pez allows us to express our own identity, our own individuality to the world. Show the world your Spider-Man, your Batman, your the Pooh, your Eeyore, or Tigger, Wolverine, or X-Men, Wonder Woman, Incredible Hulk, or even Peppermint Patty from Peanuts. Did you know that Pez was first marketed as a peppermint candy in Vienna as an alternative to smoking? And that the name Pez comes from the German word for peppermint, which I can't pronounce, but it kind of goes like this, Fessermintz. So they take the spelling and take the P, the E, and the Z from the German word. We are all different flavors and characters, but we're all the body of Christ the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Imagine Bible heroes, Pez dispensers. Moses would have only two tablets. John the Baptist his head would probably keep falling off. But the Jesus Pez dispenser would never, ever run out of candy. But more so, imagine yourselves as an AIM team, as dispenser of God's grace. In Pez, we have a simply designed tool, uncomplicated and totally accessible. It allows us to express our individuality while at the same time opening the doors that remind us that we are all connected in a legacy of faith and a people the Lord. In a few moments, you will be invited forward to affirm your ministry by God to be men and women, to be associates in ministry. Each of you are imbued with a legacy of faith, born of the Spirit of God from this congregation and residing deep inside of you as a wellspring of your very own soul. 
draw deeply from that source for when you go to others and others come to you, wanting some of what you have, not as candies, but Jesus Christ. And who knows? Giving Pez can be a sneak preview of the coming attractions of God in your life and in the lives of others. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the way you introduce new life to us. Through the writings of John, that kind of gives us a hint of things to come. And God, help us not just to sit back and wait for the end of the story, but to be excited by this introduction that we can be motivated and encouraged to step out into faith of knowing of who you are, that you are the one who is and was and is to come into our lives and into this world. In your name we pray. Amen.